Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone. Here is that interview with the Roads to Liberty podcast that I mentioned. You can watch the interview if video is your thing. Either check out the Roads to Liberty Facebook page or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and I've got it there for you. It was really nice to be interviewed by a listener. And so there were lots of good questions and uh, things very relevant to the narrative we've just covered. He really stumped me by asking how much of Byzantium's decline should be laid directly at Basil II's feet even though it's a subject we've touched on repeatedly, having to quantify it left me struggling. So enjoy that. There are lots of other fun topics too, so here's the interview. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Roads to Liberty podcast. I am your host, Token, and today we're trying something a little bit different. This has been an exclusively political podcast for the last two years, but you know what? I felt like doing something different. And one of the reasons I started doing this podcast is because I wanted an excuse to talk to interesting people about topics that interest me. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Today, we have Robin Pearson. He is the host of the History of Byzantium podcast, a podcast I highly recommend. It's become one of my absolute favorites. He picks up where uh, Chris Duncan of the History of Rome left off and continues the story of the Roman Empire after the fall of the West. Welcome aboard, Robin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Like I said, your podcast is one of my absolute favorites. It, it's I'm kind of saddened now because I spent the last week making sure I caught up on the narrative. And then I get to the last episode and find out that you're going to be taking a break for a few months. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm finally caught up. And now I got to <laughs> wait for new episodes. I guess I'm just going to have to have to buy your special episodes to, to lay me over until they come back. Yeah, well. <laughs> You've done the sales pitch for me, so that's I funny. I have uh, the 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 narrative episodes I missed out of. I was especially upset about. I'll have to go back and listen to those because missing a single episode from the narrative is kind of you're kind of missing a lot there. So yeah. I can't wait to get into that. So 
I guess where we'll start off first here is uh, I still remember the first time I ever heard of Byzantium. I was playing, I was a teenager playing Age of Empires 3, and the Byzantines were my favorite civilization to play about. One of the reasons was I had no idea who they were. <laughs> You're just this random civilization. I've never heard of them. I heard of the Franks, the Brits, the Goths, the Persians, but the Byzantines, who the heck are the Byzantines? So do you remember your first encounter with Byzantine history? That's a very good question. Um, probably, uh, yeah, at college, university. Um, you know, I may have heard of them before that, but it was only then when I got hold of this great um, atlas, which sounds duller than it was. Um, but this atlas that basically has one map of Europe and the Middle East and takes you through, say, 40, 50 years at a time. So you turn the page, the map is the same, but all the states are changing. And that kind of gives you a, an overview, a global view of history that I'd never seen before. And so I was kind of surprised to see the Roman Empire going on and on and on and on into the Middle Ages and things I was familiar with from British history. And I was like, man, how did they how did they survive that whole time? So I think that was probably when I first uh, saw the name Byzantine and realized it had something to do with the, the Romans of old. Yeah, it's, it's a really amazing thing because you see Byzantine at first and you look at it on a map and you think, oh, well, this is something completely different. But then you realize, well, wait, that's just half of the Roman Empire. So why do we even call it Byzantine? And then you get into it a little bit and you realize why and you think, Oh, well, that's that's just misleading there. It's these guys are just Romans. Why are we not calling them Romans? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for anyone, any of your listeners who don't know about this, um, it's kind of it's kind of to help our modern brains get our heads around it that, um, you know, we tend to think, oh, the Roman Empire, you know, was was run by people who lived in the city of Rome. And so the people they conquered and colonized were, you know, other nations who, you know, maybe one day threw off the yoke of the Romans and that's how the empire fell. And actually those people in the provinces over the centuries, because the Roman empire lasted so long, came to identify themselves as Romans. And so when we talk about the fall of the Roman empire in the 400s, we're really only talking about Western Europe and over in the whole eastern side of the Mediterranean, people who'd been calling themselves Romans for centuries kept going. And so this word Byzantine was coined much, much later, sort of 18th century, to help people distinguish, which obviously is helpful in one sense, because if I say I, I say to people all the time, I have a Roman history podcast, because I know they won't know what the Byzantines are. But of course, it is helpful to say, well, I'm talking about people in you know, in the year 1000 AD, I'm not talking about Julius Caesar. So there is some difference, but the word Byzantine um, it obviously confuses a lot of people. And, and just briefly, that comes from the name of the city. So Istanbul today, it was Constantinople. Before that, it was Byzantium. So that's where that name comes from. So why did you decide to do a Byzantium podcast? Why not some other topic? Well, I I actually did do other podcasts before Byzantium. I I fell in love with podcasting very early on. Um, I was always listening to music. Uh, what was I listening to then? Like a mini disc player. 
and uh, which is great to think about. I used to record the songs onto the mini disc and have to sit through the songs. Um, so yeah, when when people started releasing spoken word audio, I loved it. So I started recording shows about American TV that I loved, and I was much much too opinionated and alienated most people listening. And uh, so I was thinking, you know, I really like podcasting, but it would be nice to do something that was a bit more successful. And I just loved, you mentioned it in your introduction, uh, Mike Duncan's The History of Rome, where he takes this narrative approach and he tells you the whole story of Roman history from the start to that fall of the West. And I, again, a bit like that atlas, that someone coming along and saying, hey, you know all these stories you've heard, let me put them all together for you in one long audio narrative. I loved that. I loved that so much. And it really inspired me to learn more. You know, I'd al- I was already interested in the Romans, but I'd never put it all together. I'd read whole books about the empire, but I, I don't know, maybe some of your listeners will relate. Sometimes when you read a huge book, by the end of it, you can't remember stuff that at the beginning. And so you've kind of lost the thread. And that's the great thing about podcasting is you can kind of remind people, you can reiterate stuff all the time. And nobody says, hey, I read that 100 pages ago. Stop mentioning it. They're like, no, thank you for telling me that because I'd forgotten. Um so when he said he was going to finish, I actually wrote to him and said, don't, don't stop, continue. People will pay you money, I'm sure. And uh, he, he said, no, no, I'm fine. About a month later, I just went, huh, like, I'd like to do something like that. Could I do something like that? And it, it kind of fell into place from there. Now, did you have any idea at the time that you would actually be able to make a living off of this and would it would still be going after all these years? No, I... Yes and no, I think is a fair answer. I I knew that it would require so much work that it would have to fund itself if I was going to keep going. So I set myself the target of a year. I said, I'll do a year. And at that point, I'll see if people would fund me to go on. And so I, I thought there's a very good chance that people won't have found it, that they won't like it, they won't like my style. And then I will give up, I guess. But uh, I hoped, I hoped that there might be an audience for it. And it that when I did put an episode up for sale, it went well enough that I was encouraged that this was going to grow and find new people. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to think now that this is my full-time job. Um, But yeah, so I suppose yes and no is the real, is the true answer. Now it's pretty amazing to me because the history of Rome was a pretty long podcast and covered a very long period of time. Your podcast still has another four centuries to go until it's finished and you already have more episodes than the history of Rome had. Um, a lot of that is because of your excellent end of the century uh, wrap-ups. Uh, history of Rome didn't have those, and they do they do a really good job putting them in context. A lot of those are back of rewards episodes or Byzantine story episodes that you put up there for free. But the sheer amount of content there is on the free feed, not to mention even to mention the the bonus stuff you give out, it, it's pretty amazing. And I was I was very happy when I finished History of Rome and I got on message boards and be like, guys, I just finished History of Rome. What else is out there? And they're like, well, History of Byzantium is there to keep the story going. I'm like, done. I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you still have a long way to go until 1453. Do you have any idea what you'll do after that? There are... Um... There are still things I I 
kind of think that would be nice to do now, like with Byzantium. Um, you know, maybe because I've been uh, running these tours to Istanbul. So there are lots of other parts of the Byzantine Empire. Um, it would be a fantasy to visit, maybe to, to film or to lead tours or something. Um, but there are silly things like um, uh, I, I thought about like making tr- uh, top Trump cards you know, for like Byzantine emperors. I don't know, just silly ideas like that, that, that have occurred to me that might be fun to do uh, when the narrative ends. In terms of podcasting, I think that I might want to go back to the earlier empire. Um, you know, Mike Duncan was trying to keep just the narrative on schedule um, with like a day job as well. And so he didn't have the time and space I've had to go into all these other sources that don't really relate to the narrative, but are really interesting. So it might be nice to go back to the earlier empire and look at um, stories there. So Roman stories and little um, alleyways you can go off into. I, you know, I think it might be fun to do that. So I, I may be with the Romans for some time to come. That is good to hear. Um, so like I said, you got four centuries to go. What event are you most looking forward to covering? I guess the Crusades, which will be the next thing. Um, the more I, I'm starting to read about it now, and I mean, we all know the story of the Crusades, but when you read history uh, or listen to it the way we have, the idea that people would travel you know, across a continent to try and conquer another area or just to uproot their lives and go live somewhere they've never been, they would have no clue what it would even look like um is is more and more amazing the more i think about it i think uh just on that human level the crusades is just a amazingly interesting story and uh there are a lot of byzantine historians who think that the stories we're all familiar with about the crusades are very western focused very crusader centric and don't take into account the byzantine part in it so hopefully i can do something to put that context back in um and yeah it's uh that's a what if game what if the crusades hadn't happened i byzantium might well have fallen sooner or it might have been forced to kind of come up with other solutions to the problems it faced uh with the with the turkish invasion so yeah i i'd have to say that's going to be pretty good yeah i would say that's true because i don't think i've ever read or listened to a history of the crusades that talked in depth about Byzantium, you know, and I've always kind of separated the two in my mind without, and, and it, it was going through a little bit of Byzantium history that I realized that these, they rely on each other so much that it, it's really impossible to understand either without understanding their relationship to each other in the Crusades. But yeah, you think the Crusades, you're thinking of Jerusalem, you're thinking of the Holy Land, you're thinking of all that stuff. Never thought of Byzantium in the context of the Crusades, but they're very integral to one another. One caused the other, and and the Crusaders did, you know, they did a number on the on the Byzantines, and that was a, an unintended consequence, you could say, that the Crusades led to. Um, yeah. So the when everybody who talks about Rome, they always talk about what caused the fall of the Roman empire. But I'm more interested in another question because Rome went on forever. It was a very long lasting civilization. If you take into account the Byzantines as well as the classical, classical era Romans, 
And, and it's really amazing the catastrophes they were able to survive. I mean, the East survived the fall of the West and they stormed back under Justinian. Then they lost half their empire to the Arabs, not only managed to hold on, but ended up and but managed to have a golden age after that. Now in your narrative, they just lost all of that to the Seljuks, but they're going to come back once again before the Crusaders kind of put that nail in the coffin. And even after being partitioned by the Crusaders, they're still going to come back and continue existing for a few hundred years. So I guess my biggest question is, how was Rome able to survive all these cataclysmic events that would have obliterated almost any other kingdom in history? It's a great question. And um, there is something you'd like to think that runs consistently through the Romans wherever they are. whether it's the, you know, the ancient Romans or the, or the Byzantines, because the ancient Romans had a similar ability to survive, you know, Hannibal and all the rest of it. Um, but in the specific case of Byzantium, I guess we have to look at the practical um, level, which is that no other civilization of that time had a capital like Constantinople. And uh, I imagine most people listening know this, but if you don't, um, Constantinople, uh, Istanbul is surrounded on three sides by water, which is pretty unique. I, I, mean, I don't know enough about um, Asian history to know if there are any other cities in China or whatever that have a similar defensive setup. But that ability to just protect yourself on one side only made the city virtually impregnable. And, and its, its location just on the European side instead of the Asian side protected it from, from Eastern enemies. So that gave them a core that never fell. And I think that's what other civilizations struggled with is once the capital was occupied, all the other cities started to look out for themselves and go their own way. Um, and so keeping that capital meant you could keep all sorts of things like laws tax records, um, you know, a mint with cash on hand and so on. And so that seems to have been the core of everything. And because that city just never fell for hundreds and hundreds of years, I think people in the provinces who might otherwise have gone, well, let's make an accommodation with the enemy said, you know what, I'll, we'll, we'll hang it, we'll hold on because we, we believe that you know, the officials from Constantinople will be back, that we this isn't the end, even if it's a, a huge disaster. And, um, yeah, I think that's probably the core reason. Um, definitely, uh, uh, there's a historian called Anthony Caldellis who might argue as well that by the point you're talking about, so after the, after sort of Justinian 600, 700s, that the core of the empire were all, Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians who thought of themselves as Romans. So there's also that sense that they were a bit like a modern nation and therefore wouldn't have thought about breaking into pieces and forming their own kingdoms because they had a sense that the natural government is Constantinople. That's our people. Yeah, and you go into this a little bit during the the narrative of the podcast. A lot of people in Egypt especially followed what would be considered Heraclitus. Uh, I can't even say the word, a different sects of Christianity than the traditional Eastern Orthodox. And the loss of those actually made things a bit easier in the unity department for what remained of Byzantium. 
And you know that geography plays a role too, because because Anatolia was defended by by mountains. Bulgaria was a very mountainous area. There were natural defenses for Byzantium. At the same time, however, Byzantium has, was kind of surrounded by enemies during the entirety of its history. There's you, you had the Persians, then the Arabs, then the Turks on the eastern side. They dealt with the Bulgars, the Rus, several different nomadic steppe peoples that always seem to want to take over the Romans. And it, 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 geography was very beneficial to the Byzantines, but also very, it, it didn't, it was a kind of a double-edged sword in that regard, I would say. Because yeah. yes, it, it lent them natural defenses, but they were right at the crossroads of a lot of different peoples trying to migrate or or simply looking at the Byzantines saying, hey, those guys are rich. Let's go take their stuff. Absolutely. Um, particularly um, the kind of the, the steppe lands which end up on the Danube were just a constant influx of new tribes um, and uh, just waves kept hitting Byzantium and disrupting uh, any kind of settlement they'd made there. And so you're right, you know, they, they've got a river, they've got mountains, they've got forests, so they're rarely directly hit, but they can't find any kind of stable peace there. And similarly, I guess, in Syria, that uh, invaders were drawn to the rich cities there, and Byzantium was always on the periphery of it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's if you look at somebody, uh, someone in, say, Germany or France, they were much better insulated from forces directly invading them by, you know, the thick European forests or the Alps or whatever, uh, in a way that Byzantium was much more connected to, to the east and fresh peoples moving. Absolutely. Um, so who is your favorite character that you've covered so far? Like, not necessarily an emperor, but if just a person that you thought was very interesting and you ha you enjoyed covering? Ah, it's a great question. Um, of course, we're so dependent on the sources. Um, so uh, two of the, the two people I'd say we know the most about that I've um, studied would be John Chrysostom, who was a bishop in the fourth century and we have all his sermons and then Justinian, the very famous emperor, because we have all his laws and they both have sort of biographers who covered them, multiple biographers. So you get a, you get kind of a rich sense of them as people and, you know, they're, they're both interesting figures. I suppose I end up being drawn to people who are a bit more mysterious. So you have Simeon the Stylite, so this is a you know a monk who wants to stand on a high platform for most of his time <laughs> in wind and rain and um, you know blazing heat, and of course we know very little about the real Simeon because the people who wrote about him were his followers, so they all present him as a man of God. But people like that existed throughout Byzantine history, and. It's such an interesting idea. Obviously, we have people today who, who will do extreme things or who live as uh, ascetics and monks, but rarely who combine the two. Um, it's, it's like trying to imagine if David Blaine said, no, this is a permanent, you know, 
magic trick. It doesn't end. I'm just going to stand here for the rest of my life, you know, on some high tower or something. So stuff like that is pretty interesting. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. This It's difficult because, as you say, uh, characters, I guess, are the ones you get to know. There's just but, so many people yeah, that you've guess, covered in this podcast. I guess uh, going back to Justinian, his most famous biographer, Procopius is an interesting one because his history is so full of allusions to other texts that people aren't sure if he was even, uh, was he just a Christian author making allusions for literary purposes or was he a secret atheist, a pagan or a, someone who just thought this was all a load of nonsense and was trying to tear the emperor to shreds and all we have to go on is his history, which again is like, <laughs> I think I said to someone recently, like in a thousand years, what if all you had were Donald Trump's tweets and you had to work out from that who this guy really was. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's that kind of mystery is very intriguing. Um, so there, there's a few characters for you. That is, that is kind of interesting to think about. Like, I gotta tell you the the most memorable character you covered to me, at least is the Empress Irene simply because of the fact that she blinded her own son and led to his death. I listened to them like, holy crap. I don't think I, there was any other person in the whole history of Rome or Byzantium that quite did something like that. It was, it was a very shocking moment to me. And it's always stuck out in my mind. It is obviously unbelievably uh, strange. And the, I guess the strangest part for us is that she, because of her position within the um, struggle over icons, um, we don't have a nice historian like Procopius writing at the time, talking about how people were horrified by this. She was she fell on the right side for the historians covering that whole period. So that event is presented just like, ah, well, you know, <laughs> uh, what are sucks, you going to do? Yeah, it sucks to be him. Um, so it's so, so odd to think what people really thought at the time. And and I would guess that maybe at the time people weren't told or people were told something else. Maybe, you know, it was done against her orders. We've killed the guy who did it because you just, yeah, it's so hard to imagine people not being horrified and disgusted by that and then wanting her gone. Yeah, because it's not like they had Twitter in ancient Byzantium and some dude in the palace would just send out a tweet and everybody in the empire knows that the empress killed her son. So news travels slowly. And I mean, if you control everyone who's in the room and they don't tell everybody exactly what happened, maybe everybody else didn't know about it. I mean, yeah. there's really no way to tell, but that was, it was a very... Like I said, it's very standout moment. And it, it really doesn't jive with a modern sense of Christianity. Because, yeah, she was on the right side of history when it came to iconoclasm, or at least the winning side of history. But you would think, given our modern sensibilities, that killing your own son would far outweigh that. But these are ancient times. Things didn't quite work out that way all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... All sorts of things happened in the palace in terms of coups and people being killed or having bits of them lopped off. And yeah, you have to assume that 
it, it was not broadcast as having happened that way. I mean, people knew, obviously, people in the palace would would go and tell their friends what really happened. So rumors got out all the time. But if everyone is acting like, no, it's fine, then what are you going to do? You've got to earn a living. You need to, you know, so you're not going to protest if you're a baker and no, you know, it's just a rumor and as horrible as it is. So, yeah. All right. So now to a more specific question, how much blame do you think Basil II gets for Rome's uh, collapse with for their 11th century collapse? This is a, it's a very tricky question. Um, I think probably he shouldn't get too much blame. He he should have. So this is an emperor who who ruled for fifty years and did not groom a successor and did not have a son, and seems to have actively pre prevented his nieces from marrying and having children. So. He but he he deserves a lot of blame for that, but I suppose realistically, one can groom a son and or choose a worthy successor, and then that successor just dies anyway of a disease within a year. So it's hard to say Basil II deserves all the blame for that, but the sense we get is that Basil II did such a good job of um making the army obedient to the government and of making the government obedient to him that he made it very hard for anyone to succeed him because whoever came next was going to be weaker than him and he actively prevented anyone from developing the kind of relationships that could have kept what he'd established to go on. So he definitely deserves some blame, but it's it's hard. You then cycle through ten different emperors very quickly, and yeah, it's he definitely deserves a portion of the blame. But I think it's it's difficult to to lay it all at his feet because of how how random events are and how people live and die, and we just don't have the details to know a hundred percent how things worked down on the ground in terms of the administration. So it's 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 complicated. He definitely deserves blame. Uh, in terms of military, the military decisions he made, that's more tricky because one could argue that if he hadn't conquered Bulgaria, maybe the Romans would have been able to keep more troops back to defend themselves in other areas. But I don't see how he could have foreseen that. And I don't know if he intended to conquer Bulgaria. It seems like maybe he would have accepted a peaceful solution if it had been offered and it wasn't offered. So it's it's complicated. I think it's he strengthened the empire in so many ways that it's very hard to say it's all his fault, but it, all roads do lead back to him eventually when you are apportioning blame. So there's a very wishy-washy answer, but um, he was a unique figure and he did not seem to see the need to prepare everyone else for his departure, which is bad. Yeah, and it, it reminds me uh, of two different situations back in classical Roman history, where Augustus put so much effort into grooming an heir and just had such bad luck with it that he kept having to go to the next guy in line and couldn't really groom the right person for the job. Whereas in the era of the five good emperors, they, had, they were so good at picking the right successor and grooming them specifically for that job that the empire went through a golden age. And it's kind of hard 
not to blame Basil, at least to some degree, for taking this. It's probably one of the most important jobs of the emperor to pick the next emperor because, like, all your gains can be wiped out in a matter of years if the next guy is no good. And you see that after Basil. I mean, maybe the guys that followed him weren't all bad, but there was enough bad in there that it wasn't able to continue his success or at least even hold on to it. Um, we have a question from listener James. He asks, why didn't Maurice achieve legitimacy? It's a very good question. Uh, just to finish on Basil II very quickly. Okay. I suppose just to clarify that answer, in another age, I think Basil II would not have been blamed for anything because the empire wouldn't have collapsed the way it did. And the reason it did was all these new enemies attacking it. And there's no way Basil II could have foreseen that. So that's kind of to clarify my answer. Maurice. So Maurice is the uh, M1 after. So yeah, uh, Maurice comes a couple of emperors after Justinian. He's dealing with a lot of the problems left over from Justinian's era, kind of similar to Basil II, an emperor who rules for ages, doesn't prepare the ground for his successor, and is a hard act to follow. Maurice is, I think, in that situation, Maurice was a general. He worked very, very hard to defend the frontiers when Justinian had expanded them and made everything more expensive. So... Maurice had this great record of success where he kind of ground the empire's enemies down and he achieved something almost nobody else did, which was to take troops over the Danube and attack the Avars, who were the equivalent of the Turks, the, Bulgar the Bulgars, the Huns, the steppe confederation. He attacked them in their homeland and did great damage there, which is um, a very rare achievement. So he is then overthrown in quite a brutal coup where you know, he has five or six children and they're all killed and then he's killed. And it's absolutely horrible. And so James is asking, you know, why, why did that happen to Maurice when he'd been so militarily successful? And I think that goes to the fact that people on the ground have to deal with the daily reality of tax and, uh, you know, food being put on the table. And they are not going to appreciate the strategic successes that happen a thousand miles away. I think those those things are somewhat disconnected. And Maurice, in the end, pushed his army too far, and they were the ones who overthrew him. And that's that's something that may be unjust, but is, as a good manager, I mean, that's something Basil II did very, very effectively. He tamed the army. He made the army very loyal to him. And I think Maurice didn't. And I think again, Justinian set a precedent for ruling from the palace and not dealing with these armies hundreds of miles away. And I think that built up a level of disconnect between the court and the soldiers and they overthrew Maurice. So yeah, it's a hard luck story, his story. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a story that repeats itself throughout Roman and Byzantine history. It's, it's one of the downfalls of Roman civilization. And it kind of gets me to my next question. You talk a lot in your podcast about the Republican nature of the emperor, that this was not a traditional monarchy in the way that we think of in the West. This wasn't like the king of England or the king of France or these monarchs that were divinely ordained by God himself 
who are your rulers and you just better get along with it because they're the ones that God chose. This was more of a position that anyone can hold, which, which, is, which gives opportunity to a lot of people who were made very good emperors that they never would have had otherwise. But at the same time, it was a recipe for endless civil war. So would you, do you think that this Republican, uh, this Republican sort of source for the, for the emperor himself, do you think that was a net positive or a negative for the Romans? That is the, that's the, $800 $800 million question or whatever the, the figure <laughs> the figure is. Um, there's a historian called Mark Witto who did a study of the rulers in the neighboring states during this, during this era, sort of 800 to 1100. And he showed exactly what you've said, that every other state had longer lived rulers and had a system that protected the rulers. So obviously we're more familiar with monarchs who tend to stay in place, even if kind of, you know, advisors and um, politicians are falling and falling in and out of favor. And you have similar systems in, say, Egypt or China, where a vizier will do the actual management and the emperor is kind of above politics. And Byzantium has this, as you say, it's almost like you've elected a president who's also the prime minister who has to do everything he has to be the military hero and the leader of the religion and run the state. And so it's very tricky. I mean, I suppose on the one hand, there are very few insane or um, like completely self-indulgent emperors in Byzantium. Um, the fact that you have to be the head of the Christian faith in all your behavior kind of prevents Caligula's and Nero's from coming through. Um, but in that study I mentioned, um, and and the, the narrative we've just been through, you see the absolute negative side, that when things start to go badly, everybody starts trying to become emperor. And it becomes, I'm trying to think of like a modern analogy. People talk about like the government of Italy um, being constantly in coalitions so new governments are forming, you know, every year. I'm, I can't speak to what's happening today, but, you know, this was like a, their reputation in the 90s, the noughties. And that's a sort of analogy for what happens in Byzantium, that the emperor might be very successful. He might be Maurice and he can be overthrown tomorrow because of how flexible the system is to allow a newcomer, even one who's blinded their own child or, or killed you in your bed to take over. So I think... I think it's a, it's a situation that reacts to the pressure on the outside. When the situation is good, you know, you talk about the year of the five emperors. We've just had a period where we had Nicephorus Focus, John Zimisces, Basil II. When there's no pressure on the state from the outside, the system is a positive benefit because you get the best of the best rising to the top. When the system is under pressure from external enemies, it's a real negative because you get people saying, well, if that guy can be emperor, I can be emperor because he, I know him, he's a terrible guy, he's rubbish at everything. So I, I think it's one of those things that because the empire came under too much pressure, it turned out to be a net negative. But I don't think having a, an incompetent king for 50 years during this period of pressure would have been much more helpful. So I think it's a system that kind of was good in the good times and very bad in the bad times. I mean, at some point in time, you just got to look at 
the longevity of Byzantium and go, you know what? If it was so bad, it probably wouldn't have survived all that it went through for as long as it did. So I'd say probably a net positive, but those civil wars, man, those civil wars just destroyed Rome at the worst times. Yeah. And they never got over it. They were always fighting civil wars. There was, I mean, yeah, they, they would have periods of golden ages now and then, but man, when those golden ages ended, they ended bad. And even though the Byzantines would survive, Every time they came back, they were smaller and weaker than they were before. Um, so we got another question from listener James. He asks, what, does, what do you think of the early modern narratives, Gibson, Burry, etc.? Uh, they are great to read. Um, there's definitely, um, you know, Gibbon has turns of phrase that, that are amazing. You know, that old style writing can sometimes say things in a, you know, a very beautiful, florid way. Sometimes the humor is very dry. Um, <laughs> Gibbon has a line, this has nothing to do with Byzantium. It's about like a, pa- a contest between three popes. I'd, I'd say this is like 14th century or something. And Gibbon is talking about one of these popes who he says like, uh, was brought up on charges to be dismissed from even contestant, you know, from being a contestant to be Pope. And he says, uh, the Vicar of Christ, you know, was put on trial and the most scandalous charges were suppressed so that he was only charged with piracy, rape and sodomy. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's he just has a, it's, he has a dry humor that just doesn't, doesn't happen in modern narratives. So they are good to read. They are now, uh, out of date, we would say, like modern scholarship has uh, called into question a lot of their narratives. And I mean, that is essentially what modern history is. It's recognizing how much we don't know. Um, you know, we we look back on a period of 100 years, kind of like, you know, is Basil II to blame for the disasters that follow? And we connect them all because we can see them from a global perspective. But of course, people at the time were like we are today, talking about Brexit and Trump and what's going to happen tomorrow. They weren't talking about, well, obviously, 40 years ago this happened, so that's what we're going to do next. And so, yeah, all those narratives become out of date and obsolete in terms of their conclusions after a while, as the history of Byzantium may become one day as the scholarship develops. Well, that'll just give you the opportunity to go back and fix whatever errors (laughs) we had and keep this going for a long time. Um... What was your favorite period to cover? Uh, There was a very short uh, civil war uh, that I loved because this was uh, Thomas the Slav uh, rebelling against, uh, uh, testing my memory, whether it was Michael IV. Um, But it's a very rare instance where we have two uh, different versions of events uh and they are quite different from each other covering the same civil war and that's just so interesting to dive into and be like how can there be two different narratives that were accepted and kind of along that same theme i would say the the origins of islam the the coming of the arabs to take over the whole of the eastern mediterranean was probably the most fascinating period and the, the thing they both have in common is how much we don't know and so the theories people can conjure from small amounts of evidence is just so interesting to learn about. So those are probably the two that I got most interested in. See, I would say that the part of your podcast that 
I found most fascinating was the period in time after the loss of the eastern provinces where the Roman army completely it changes completely from what you think of as a Roman army and becomes kind of this guerrilla force that instead of standing and fighting, wait in mountain passes for the enemy to be weighed down with loot and slaves and then just ambush and crush them. Um, you're, you had a fictional account of a, a Byzantine story about a soldier in this situation that I found absolutely fascinating. And that period in time, it, it seems so odd because you think in modern warfare, armies cross borders not to raid, but to capture strategic strongholds and defeat the enemy. But the Arabs were just going over to steal, essentially. And the Roman army wasn't there to stop them. They were just there to make them regret it and stop coming back. I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that, so this is a whole period where um, the the Romans are so outnumbered by their neighbors in the caliphate that, yeah, there is, there is no point in standing and fighting. You could lose thousands and thousands of men and then who's, who's going to be there next year? And so the Romans who, who for centuries are all about um, standing and fighting become like, you know, the... Uh, Afghans or the Vietnamese, you know, faced with a an invading power who will wipe them out if they stand and fight. And so they have to turn to the terrain and try to uh, ambush and, and counterattack and hide, hide in the shadows. And that's what Roman life became. And uh, I'd got listeners messaging me to say, yeah, but what's the development in the Roman army? What are the battle plans? What are the formations? And so I ended up writing that episode because I thought, I'm going to explain all this. And then people are going to say, yeah, yeah, but what about the formations? What about the weaponry? And I was like, I need to, I need to say this in narrative form because I think people will, as seems to have happened to you, go, ah, oh, now I get it because you've, you've put me in their shoes rather than just talked at me and tried to explain it. So, yeah, I'm really glad that came across well, because that's what, all, that's what all the sources were explaining to me, and I was trying to convey, this is guerrilla warfare. This is a completely different uh, Roman army at this point. So I want to play a little bit of what if now, and this is a question that I posed a few weeks back that I thought was absolutely fascinating. It's one of the reasons I actually wanted to get you on, um, thinking back to the period in time where the Arabs conquered the Persians and took half of the Roman Empire, there was a period of warfare preceding that that most people don't know about where the Romans and Persians decimated one another in a gigantic war. And the Persian political scene after that was just a series of revolts and emperors murdering each other. Such a destabilizing event. I wonder what you think might have happened if the Arabs had invaded and met a full-strength Persian and Roman Empire. Well, this is another massive question. Right. Because we don't know what really happened with uh, the Islamic story. So the story that's come that has formulated is that uh 
uh, Muhammad in whatever form got a large part of the uh, Arab population of what we now think of as Saudi Arabia united under his banner. And when he died, they stayed a united force and led armies into Syria and met, as you're saying, a, a weakened Roman state and a weakened Persian state. But if you follow uh, brave historians who've tried to unpick that, what they wonder is whether that really happened in that way. They wonder if it was more like some form of, of raiding, some form of the Romans and the Persians have been gone for so long that we can start running the trade in South Syria. We can take over this city, some much smaller goals. And that when they came into contact with Roman and, and Sassanid forces, they defeated them so easily that it led to a snowball effect. And somehow, once they defeated a full Roman army, there was a sense of, hey, we should now unite all the people of Arab uh, language and, and ethnicity or, or however you would look at it under our banner. And so retrospectively, we look and go, oh, well, they united and they led this big army and they conquered everything. So I suspect this is pure speculation because we are piecing together from tiny bits of information what might have happened. But I suspect if the Romans and the Sassanids had not had this long war, that whatever happened with Muhammad and his followers, they would never have dreamt of attacking on mass Roman and Sassanid positions because they would have said, well, that's crazy. Why would we do that? So they might have formed a completely different political or religious um, community based on the six circumstances of the day. So I think that the, that's the real answer is that uh, their victories led them to look back and see it as a divinely ordained uh, mission. But in reality, they were just more effective militarily than they realized. And of course, once you win one big battle, now you've got the money to recruit everybody who wants to come and join you. And you've now got the bigger army. And so very rapidly, they were the stronger power. So I, yeah, I just, I can't help but think you'd have had a coalition coming to the Romans saying, you need to pay us this much and we'll police the desert. And maybe there would have been conflict there, but I suspect they would have just not imagined that the Romans were going away. It was only once they'd gone that it was like, hey, like this is crazy. Like, what have we there's, done? There's yeah. nobody stopping us. Let's just keep yeah. going. Absolutely. And if you were writing a history of that at the time, you would conclude that God had everything to do with that. Um, you know, just as if if China or the United States collapsed in the next five years, you would say, well, there something, something supernatural is going on because, you know, or, or I don't know how we would interpret that. We would interpret that as the Wall Street crash times a million or something had happened that was just beyond a state's capacity to survive, something that no one had ever imagined before. I mean, and not only that, but this backwards out of the way area suddenly becomes the world's superpower. Like the United States and China gone and Ghana becomes the superpower of the whole world. It's like, what? <laughs> How did yeah. this happen? Well, there you go. A people who'd never been united politically before. So in our modern world, maybe it would be, you know, all tech nerds 
unite and form a state you know what i mean some some group from different countries forming together in kind of a solid block that's how revolutionary it was now another what if that i wondered a lot about is you have this period in time during justinian where he takes back a fair amount of lost roman territory takes back italy takes back north africa even goes so far as to take back part of spain and then after all that, the plague comes and just pulls the rug right out from under him. Um, it leaves you wondering, could he have still, could he have kept going had the plague not occurred when it did? Uh, it's, it's very interesting to wonder uh, what the world would have been like because we can't fully quantify how damaging the plague was. Um, but... I don't think he would have got much further. Um, the, uh, the, the two places where he had the most success, Africa and Italy, were both still Roman states, essentially. Cities running the countryside with a recognizable center in Carthage or in uh, Rome or Milan. Um, in Italy. And so to take those places over, you all you needed to do was topple the elite and just replace them with Byzantine officials. To do that anywhere else would have been much more tricky because Spain, where they landed, is geographically quite complicated. Again, mountains and long plains to get across. And, you know, the people who would become the Basques would have been quite resistant and the people living, you know, on the West Coast would have caused trouble. And it wasn't as easy to just land troops, take over a city and go, now we administer the countryside. And then to go into France, which obviously was um, Western Roman Empire for a long time, I think would have been impossible because the Franks uh, and Burgundians and other people there were militarized in a way that the elites in Italy and Africa weren't. And so the Byzantines could defeat a fellow professional army, and that was the end of it. But to fight a constant war against a militarized elite, I think the Byzantines would quickly have lost because they'd have been operating so far from home. And I just don't think they had the logistical power to do that, particularly given you'd have needed the Persians to be at peace this whole time and not giving you any trouble so that you didn't need full garrisons in the east. So I think he did as well as he could, but it could well have lasted. You could well have had Africa and Italy stay Byzantine for much longer. And that would have that would have tested things because they were not Greek-speaking areas. So what that would have done to Byzantium's sense of identity and, and religious cohesion is a, is a very interesting question. It is, and, and a fool's uh, an, an empire not weakened by plague could have could have very well managed to drive off the Persians when they invaded. And if they had managed to do that, who knows? Maybe maybe the situation with the Arabs they don't lose that territory because I mean I didn't realize how devastating the plague was to Byzantium when I when we got to that period of history, and then you start going over it. Um, and you, there, you, you suggested a few books in the course of your, your podcast that I, I went out and got. I got Justinian's Plague, which was fantastic. It's, it's a great book that goes into detail about this. And then Lost to the West, which is kind of a best of Byzantine history book that takes that, that just covers the 
most fascinating parts of Byzantine history from the fall of the West to 1453. Um, but we've been going for about an hour now. I think that I've took, I, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, one, one listener did want to know, did, well, he had a pretty uh, negative opinion of Justinian and he wanted to know why you chose to put his, uh, his face as the main picture in your podcast. Uh, just because it's such a famous image, um, and the first like year of the podcast was all about him, and yeah, I so I just kind of knew that that would people would see it and recognize it, and of course, then I didn't know if it was going to go on longer than a year, so it seemed like Justinian can can take center stage, and uh, we'll 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 let the podcast do the assessing rather than the uh, the podcast logo. Okay, last question, I swear. James just asked, he goes, were Italy and North Africa inside Byzantine's, quote-unquote, natural borders? It's, it's very difficult to say what what are Byzantium's natural borders. Um, you know, it, it, you, could, you could say when the division came between East and West that the whole of the Balkans was was within Constantinople's sphere, but it was very rarely under um, Byzantium's control. Are Egypt and Syria within Byzantium's natural borders? I don't know. Um, North Africa, uh, you know, North, North Africa and Italy, w- what we kind of forget today is that it was much easier to get to them by sea than it was by land. And and so for a lot of people, the idea of sailing back and forth between, say, Turkey and Italy was much easier than the idea of walking overland to France. So to some extent, you can say these places were naturally connected to Constantinople. But I think we'd have to have a big longer debate about the definition of natural borders. Absolutely. So for people who want more information about your podcast and or want to learn how to contribute to it and get those bonus episodes that you make so many of, how would they go about doing this? Head to the history of Byzantium.com and have a look around. And on the right-hand menu, you'll see episodes for sale and you can uh, peruse the catalog there. But uh, if you're interested in, in Roman history, uh, I would definitely recommend the history of Rome podcast. It's a good place to start. You'll get all your Julius Caesar there and, uh, you know, if you if you're not ready for Byzantium yet, start there, and hopefully you'll end up uh, experiencing all the fun of Byzantium eventually. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the on the show. I thought this was a fantastic conversation. Very interesting stuff we went over, uh, and I can't wait for your narrative to pick up again because I want to know what all happens from the rise of the Seljuks on to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. It's going to be a very interesting ride. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Remember, everybody, the website is roads2liberty.com. That's roads2liberty.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds. We're on YouTube. And you can email us at roads to liberty podcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode and you want to hear more of this if you want more history content or just non-political content let us know what you thought about this show and if you like it enough we'll definitely do something like this again all right everybody you have a nice day and remember stay sane because the world will not thank you robin